All right. Terrific to hear from these missionaries, isn't it? We appreciate the work that our World Christian Team has done to bring us those messages and all the emphases that will be a part of this month. I think you're going to find it very, very important and meaningful and inspiring. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad that you're a part of this hour and our uh, gathering in the name of Christ. In a few minutes, I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 145. If you want to open up a Bible, you'll be uh, prepared to read that with me in just a moment. So as we have been saying already this morning, we are in a series of uh, weeks where we're focusing on what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ in this world. And I'm calling these talks around that God at Work in the Neighborhood. Because the fact of the matter is, our world has shrunk. Our world has gotten small in the sense that we are one large neighborhood. And uh, we're going to be talking about how this world is ever-changing next week. For example, uh, there are more Christians worshiping Jesus today in Kenya than in Canada. There are just as many Christians in China as in America. And we can go on and on with uh, the new developments that are happening in this ever-changing world. But what we're talking about today is how this ever-changing world is given by God a never-changing gospel. It's the same truth that has always been uh, the revelation and the disclosure of God about who He is, who we are, and how we can have a meaningful and eternal relationship with Him. And so that's what we're going to talk about for these next few moments. Uh, and as we do, I want us to reflect on a question that was kind of posed um, in this past week, an issue of USA Today. Basically asking the question, does truth really matter? And as the author of the article got into it, he began to recount some of the things that have been part of our popular culture lately. And so he says, you know, Lance Armstrong is a cheat, Manti Teo is a liar, and Beyonce is pretender. But does it really matter? Does truth matter? And for those of you that have been out of the country and have not followed these things for the last few days, uh, Beyonce was invited to sing at the presidential inauguration, and it was a tremendous uh, rendition of the national anthem, uh, but only to find out later that she had lip-synced it because of uh, not being able to, in her words, not being able to prepare with the band, which is an important thing, isn't it, Lauren? So you want to prepare with the band, and not, not to mention the uh, conditions in D.C., uh, so cold and so breezy. It wasn't uh, the best scenario for a singer, but nevertheless, uh, it looked like she was singing it live. And so uh, that's the charge of pretending. Does that really matter? And then, of course, uh, Manti Teo, the Notre Dame football star who... Uh, supposedly had a girlfriend for a couple of years with whom he had never physically met but had this telephone and online relationship all this time. She uh, gets leukemia. She dies this past fall. He's inspired by that. His teammates are inspired by that. They go on to have an undefeated season. Notre Dame Nation is inspired by that only to find out that this person never existed. And, of course, he uh, shows up on the Katie Couric show where she interviews him about how can this happen? How can you uh, not know that uh, this was a hoax? And he says uh, they were very, very convincing. 
And uh, Katie presses the issue to the point where she says, don't you feel like you've kind of been living a lie? And he said, no, I am the victim of this hoax. They have lied to me. I did not lie. And in just a few minutes, she said, do you have any regrets? And he said, well, actually, my only regret is that I lied to my father about this whole thing. So he didn't lie, but he lied. But he really didn't lie, honestly, believing. Anybody else confused? Does it really matter? Of course, Lance Armstrong, who had been charged with doping in uh, his cycling career, but never been able to, to prove that he had been guilty of it, finally shows up on Oprah and uh, confesses that he was, in fact, doping through all of those years. He has uh, since been stripped of uh, the seven Tour de France titles and uh, no telling what kinds of legal things he's uh, about to encounter. I don't know if you watched the interview, but uh, as he begins to tell his story and why he did what he did, he basically made this case. Doping is so pervasive in the sport of cycling, I did it just to level the field. So there's no uh, confession to a crime, to something having been actually done wrong. It was just an act he did to level the field and... He's now going to pay the price for that, and he thinks it's way too heavy of a price uh, that they've been too harsh on him. So what do you think? Does it matter? Is truth an issue worth really grappling about these days? When it comes to somebody lip-syncing a song, I don't get too bent out of shape about that. I mean... Uh, there's a lot of venues in which that kind of thing happens so that the quality of the performance is at whatever level. But when you come to somebody like Manti Teo, who I didn't lie, but my one regret is this lie, but I'm not lying, please believe me. Or Lance Armstrong, who not only deceived the entire cycling world and all of his competitors, but all of his endorsers, his sponsors that spent multiple millions upon backing him, uh, it's crime. Now, I say all that to say this. If you paid attention at all to any of those stories this week, if you paid attention to all of them, you spent a long time taking all those stories in. If you only paid attention to one of them, you spent a significant amount of time taking those stories in. And my question now is, what if someone had spent comparable time considering whether or not Jesus is God the Savior of this world, who paid an atoning price on a cross, rose from the dead, and lives forevermore, and invites us to know. What if someone spent just the same amount of time we did on a pop culture issue wrestling with that truth claim? Suppose it would have made a difference? Jesus has in fact said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And the verse goes on to say, no one comes to the Father, no one can be reconciled to God except by me. Now, on one hand, when you're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're talking about one of the most inclusive invitations of God that there can be. The scriptures make it very clear. Whosoever 
will come. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a very inclusive kind of invitation, but it's also very exclusive. Whosoever will come or call upon the name of Christ. There's one means. One path to salvation. Now, what you have to decide is, is that true? And does it matter? So let me just go ahead and show my cards real quickly. I think this question matters more than any other question in the entire world and for all time in history. I think this is the question. Now, if the answer is no, it's not true, forget it. But if the answer is yes, it's true. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. There is no other saving means that God has made available to humanity. And friends, that's all that matters. And it's something that we need to grapple with and that we need to to come to terms with and that we need to bring our life into harmony with. So that's what I want to speak to you about for these next few minutes. This never changing gospel that God is bringing into an ever-changing world. And I want to do that by uh, underscoring the importance of this with respect to the person of Jesus. This is why this matters so much. Because you can't play the game that says, well, I respect Jesus. I honor Jesus. I think Jesus was a great philosopher. I think Jesus was a great uh, moralist. He was a great teacher. He was maybe one of the best examples of anybody that ever lived. You can't play that game. Because Jesus said, I am God. And so, to make such a statement and to be false... But he is sincere, just sincerely wrong. And friend, he's probably a lunatic. Think he's some kind of God. Now, if this claim is false and he is insincere, then all you can say is that he's a liar. You can't say he's a great moralist, a great philosopher, a great teacher, a great example. If he knew he wasn't God and kept saying he was God, then friends, that's just lying. But if this is true, then what you're looking at in Jesus is that He is Lord. And that definitely matters. So, let's uh, unpack this with two questions and then I'm going to be through today. The first question is this, because we're going to be talking for the whole month about being a world Christian, being on mission, letting God use us to take the gospel of the world. What does that involve? What is the biblical task of missions? And what we're told in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 is this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a tremendous, terrific promise. But how will you know to do that? The verse goes on to say, How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone telling them this good news? So now you're looking at the task of what it means to be about the biblical task of missions. It is to 
preach. It is to announce. It is to speak the story of Christ, the saving work of Christ, the difference that that can make in your life, why as Lord He is deserving of your wholehearted 100% allegiance and surrender to Him. So that's part of the task. And then we make disciples of those who believe. Now notice what is not in that task. We don't make believers. We don't convince anybody. We don't convert anybody. Uh, this whole idea about proselytizing and going and forcing your religion and forcing your beliefs and so on, that's not anything about what we're talking about. Have those kind of abuses happened in times past? Of course they have. And it's sometimes been really ugly, sometimes very injurious, and sometimes it started wars, right? So there's some, there's some bad history stuff there, but at the heart and the core of who we are and what we're about is this, to announce there's good news. If you'd like to know about it, I'd be so privileged to tell you about it. And it's up to God to be at work in that person in such a way that they hear it, they believe it, they are convinced, they are converted. And when that happens, then we're tasked with discipling them, helping them to grow in this newfound faith. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there you are. There's our mission. We announce the good news. When God saves people, converts people to be Jesus followers, then we train, we develop, we disciple them, teaching them everything that uh, God has taught us through the disclosure of his word. And uh, to whom does this involve? He said to all nations. That Greek phrase, ta ethne, literally means all kinds of people groups. And there are, at last count, around 16,000 people groups that have unique sense of identity or culture or language or, or some kind of thing. And obviously, that creates barriers between one culture to another culture to another culture. And so part of our task is to go to cross barriers, to bridge gaps, to uh, be able to learn how to communicate in a heart-type language so that we can announce good news and then, when people are converted, make disciples. Okay, still with me? What we need to underscore at this point about the task is that this is not by invitation. There are a lot of countries in this world that will not tolerate this news being shared with their people. So we're not talking about something where you were invited and thus we had the person that had uh, partial identity uh, not disclosed because he's in a dangerous circumstance and if uh, where he is people knew who he was and what he was doing, his life would be in danger. No, missions is not a sense of being invited somewhere. Missions is a matter of being sent. And God has said, you're my follower? Good. Go. And I want you to go across the cubicle. I want you to go across the street in your neighborhood. I want you to go across the globe. And he's called different ones of us to go different parts of the going journey. So, second question as we hasten toward the conclusion. We've talked about what is the biblical task. Now, is all of that really necessary? 
very, very important question. Because if this is not necessary, friends, we are wasting our time over this month. And every time, and we're, we're going to be telling you about a special offering that you'll have the uh, opportunity to give toward across the rest of this year and how that's going to be divided up and all the missional difference that that works. There's no sense in you giving a dime to missions if it's not necessary. See, this, is, this gets into the question of whether or not God actually judges people at some point. God actually condemns people at some point if there is the reality of a hell or not. And so that's what we're getting into. Are people really perishing forever if they don't get this good news and if they are not converted and if they are not saved and become followers of Christ? And the, the biblical answer to that is yes. Now, I'm going to unpack that a little bit because... There are few things in American culture that are as offensive as what I just said. To modern American sensibilities, the idea of a God who would judge someone and condemn someone to an eternity of hell just seems crazy. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. And that's where we get to Psalm 145. So if you have that found in your Bible, read along with me if you will. Picking up in verse 17, just more disclosure about who God is and what God is like. We're told the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Don't we love a God like that? Then last verse. But all the wicked he will destroy. Now, honestly, in our culture, that's the way that plays out. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Wait a minute. What was that last phrase? But all the wicked he will destroy. And I don't know how many times I've had this conversation. I don't know how many times I've heard this phrase. But my God is a God of love. Mm -hmm. Okay? You are suggesting with that statement that to be a God of love and a God of wrath, a God of anger, a God of judgment, are mutually exclusive. You go, I don't know how somebody can be loving and angry at the same time. Well, it happens all the time when there is legitimate love at play. So, here's what we need to understand. The opposite of love is not anger. In fact, if you truly love someone and they began to be ravaged by evil people, or evil circumstances and experiences. If that doesn't make you mad, there's something wrong with your love. When you truly love someone, and whether someone else or something else is ravaging them, or by their own self-destructive proclivities, they are ravaging themselves, that will make you angry. Because the opposite of love is not anger. 
The opposite of love is hate. And the ultimate expression of hate is indifference. If I don't care anything about you, you don't matter at all, then I, I don't have strong feelings for you anyway whatsoever. Positive or negative. You just don't matter. And God can be loving and wrathful because it matters to Him. It matters to Him that you know Him, that you know the life that He created for you to live, that you, you are able to go through the, the plan, the dream, that He has uh, implanted in your heart has been a part of eternity's destiny for you. All that matters to Him. And if it didn't matter to Him, we'd be in way worse shape because He just wouldn't care. He would be an indifferent God. And so we can read the passage we just read. We can read dozens and hundreds of other passages where God is constantly at work for justice. To make wrongs right. To settle accounts that have been unfair and cruel. In fact, friends, the whole notion of being a practitioner of nonviolent methodologies is based upon the premise that we think there is a God who will settle that account someday. I can choose to be nonviolent in, in, in my response and in my actions about whatever circumstance because I believe vengeance is the Lord. He'll take care of it someday. If I don't believe that, then my heart is open toward brutality because after all it doesn't matter you won't ever pay you won't ever be judged you won't ever be condemned for being brutal and friend thus you have the rise of a Nazism a communism so many other isms we could talk about throughout history now you go okay well I'm fine about fighting evil fighting injustice I mean that's one thing but sending people to hell <laughs> That, that's something else. And so the question persists, how does that fit with the love of God? And here's how it fits. See, we have some kind of notion in America that going to hell is like this. I just tried to be the best person I knew how to be. And it didn't exactly toe some line that uh, God had out there. And now I'm going to be slam dunked to hell. And there's this you know, picture of somebody being cast away. And as they're falling down into the depths and the pit of hell, they're crying all along the way. Oh, have mercy. Oh, please forgive me. Please give me another chance. What do you mean? I, I ran out of chances. I don't. And friends, all I can say to you is that that is a caricature. That's not the picture that you find in the scriptures about what it is to go to hell. Now, the, one of the most clearly defined pictures of what it means to go to hell is found in Luke chapter 16 in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And briefly, the story says, Jesus is telling the story, there's a rich man, he's got it all. He's got everything that you'd ever want in life. Okay, he's got the house, he's got the, the possessions, he's got all the banqueting foods and all this kind of stuff. 
And outside the gate of his house is a poor beggar guy by the name of Lazarus. Lazarus just hopes to have breadcrumbs from the table of the rich man from time to time. Well, as time goes on, the beggar man dies, and he goes to heaven. The rich man dies, and he goes to hell. And the story goes on to say that while he is in hell, there's a chasm between heaven and hell, and he can see across it. He can see into heaven. And he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, which is an idiomatic way of saying knowing the joy of heaven, the intimacy of heaven, the blessing of heaven in the bosom of Abraham. He sees Lazarus. And so he calls out to Abraham across the chasm between heaven and hell. And he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, the story goes on to say, Abraham responds and he says, well, that can't happen. That's a fixed chasm. Nobody can go over back and forth. And the guy goes on to say, hey, I've got brothers. Send Lazarus back to earth and let him warn my brothers. Abraham says, your brothers already have Moses and the prophets. Oh, but if one were to come back from the dead, the rich man said, and tell them they would believe. Now, What's that all revealed to us? Nowhere does the rich man say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, I was unkind in this world. Have mercy on me, I was unjust. I didn't care for the poor. I didn't care about anybody but myself. Have mercy on me. I was so self-centered. I was so selfish. It was all about me, 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 me. Have mercy on me because I missed. There's nothing like that. See, what he says is, it's just pretty hot here. Would you send water boy Lazarus to bring a little water from my tongue? I need a little relief. See, friends, the same life the rich man had in this world continued on the same trajectory so that even in hell, he only had more of what he had in this world. And that is self-centeredness, selfishness. It's all about me, 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 my, my, my. So that he still even looked at Lazarus like a water boy. Not like a saint that had gone to heaven. What you find in the Scriptures is that the invitation of God is for us to be connected with Him in such a way that we find new life and new identity in Him that suits us and readies us for an eternity of living with Him. Heaven is more of Him, more of Him, more of Him, more of Him. If you didn't want Him in this life, then when life is over, you only get more of not having Him. You've already set that trajectory and you continue in that same direction. So this isn't a matter of sending reluctant people, oh, if I only had one more chance. See, I mean, his plea was even, you didn't give me enough information. See, all I had was Moses and the prophets. If you'd actually had somebody rise from the dead, self-justification. You understand what we're talking about here? 
Now, Romans 1.24 says it this way. When you strain and stretch yourself against the person of God, the plan of God, the saving work of God, so he says, okay, God will then let them go and allow them to do what their sinful hearts wanted to do. That's what we're talking about. You say, well, that just still doesn't square with this idea that God is love. Okay, friends, let me ask you this. Where do you think that the notion that God is love came from? It didn't come from Islam. That is a foreign concept. They don't want to have nearness with God at all because he's only this angry God to avoid. It didn't come from Buddhism. It didn't come from Hinduism. It didn't come from any other kind of ism in this world. The whole notion that God is love came from Christianity. came from the Bible. The same Bible that says he's also a God of wrath and judgment. And so if you're going to buy into part of the narrative and part of the story, friend, you've got to know and buy into the rest of the narrative. And again, we're at the same question. Is this true? Because if it's not, don't worry about it. But if it is, it matters more than anything. Now, is missions necessary? Are people actually perishing forever? Our answer, yes. Christ's work, dying on the cross, atoning for sin, rising from the dead, ascending back to the Father. Is that like really necessary to save them? Okay, let's just for argument's sake say people are perishing. But would there also be a Hindu way to heaven? Would there also be a, a Muslim way to heaven? Would there also be a, a Buddhist way to heaven? I mean, is it Christ's work that's really necessary? And of course, the biblical answer to that is yes. And let's just think about that for a moment. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is only one God, one mediator, who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Romans 5.12 and 15 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through the other man, Jesus Christ. In other words, the Apostle Paul says the whole grand narrative of history breaks down to this. First man brought sin and death. The second man brought saving grace and eternal life. Juxtaposing Adam and Jesus. And then Luke 24, 46 says it this way. So thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So all I'm reiterating is that the scriptures would affirm over and over again the work of Christ is absolutely necessary. Think, okay, final part of that question then. Must people hear of Christ's work and believe in order to be saved? In other words, okay, he, he died on the cross, I believe that. He atoned for sin, I believe that. He rose from the dead, I believe that. He ascended back to heaven, I believe that. But do I have to have heard that and believe that for that to count? Could that saving work just save people that never heard about it? And the answer is, yes, people must hear 
Christ's work and belief. Now, we referenced that scripture earlier from Romans chapter 10, where it says, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless they have a preacher? And how will they have a preacher unless he's sent? Remember that old passage? The hearing is necessary. But you go, there's a lot of people that haven't heard. What about them? Well, we're told in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so that, therefore, they are without excuse. Without excuse for what? Without excuse for having had some revelation, there is a God. So, to be more precise, yes, it's necessary to hear Christ's work in order to be saved. But no, you will not be judged for not hearing the gospel. You will be judged for rejecting the revelation that you did receive. Because the point Paul is making in Romans is this. You've received enough revelation. I don't care who you are and where on the planet you are. You've received enough revelation to know there's a God. And that that knowledge would stir your heart to want to know Him. To, to set you on a course of seeking and searching. And of course Jesus said, whoever seeks, whoever searches will find. That's built into the Gospel. And so what we are held accountable for, if we've never heard, is, well, we rejected the revelation that we got. Romans one twenty one says it this way, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. That matters. We are accountable to live according to the revelation that we have received. A couple of quick stories and I'm through. Kareem, young lady who is a Muslim, who one night went to bed and dreamed she had a car wreck. And in her dream, she is in a bad way. And in her dream, a man comes to her and says, you, what you need right now is to have me in your life. And because she you know, was in an American culture, she recognized this image to be something like Jesus. So she awakens. She's very stirred about this dream revelation, if you will. And uh, the next few days, she gets hold of a friend who she knows is Christian and goes to church. She says, can I go to church with you? She goes to church. She hears the gospel in a gathering like this. And she believes and becomes a Christ follower. Absolutely responded to revelation that came her way. Omar spent years and years and years in a prison in a closed country under a dictator. And one night while he's in his cell in prison, he has a dream. And in that dream, a man comes to him and says, you will soon be released. Three days later, he is released from jail after having been years inexplicably released. He is able to escape the country. He flees to America he begins to start a whole new life here in America. He uh, meets some friends through various avenues. And one of these friends is a Christian who is concerned for Omar. 
and uh, on one occasion gives him a book that he thinks will be meaningful to him to introduce the Christian faith to him. And on the cover of the book is a portrait of Jesus. And when Omar sees the book and sees the cover, he goes, oh my gosh, that's who came to me in my dream in the jail cell. The very likeness. He soon began to read the gospel, go to church, hear the gospel, and he became a follower of Christ. Abraham Sakar grew up in Bangladesh and was being trained and tutored to be an Islamic evangelist to make more Muslims. And in his preparations, he was very devout in his prayers, in his fasting, in all of the acts uh, that they call for out of a good Muslim. And on one occasion, he is in the mosque praying, and it seems like he hears in his prayers, which is not something that often happens, this message. Read the Bible. Now, you need to understand in Bangladesh, that's a crime. It's also considered an Islamic abomination. And so he's like, uh, that must have been from the devil. That must have been something that, that you know, read the Bible, read the Bible, you know. And he, they are very superstitious, wouldn't dare touch the Bible. But that message persisted with him. That little piece of revelation persisted with him. And within a few days, he came across a copy of the Bible in his language. He read it and for the very first time saw the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, became a believer, and now runs a ministry to Muslims out of Dallas, Texas. And then finally, I'll close with Khalil. Khalil lives in Egypt, was trained for uh, being a jihadist. And in his trainings, his superior came to him one day and said, I want you to write a book that shows the fallacies and the, and the unreliability of the Bible. Khalil pushed back and said, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to touch the Bible. I believe a curse will come upon me if I open a Bible. And his superiors pressed him and said, no, we want you to write this book and debunk the Bible. So he opens the book, he begins to read the Bible, and he cannot believe the story of Jesus. His heart is moved and stirred about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He becomes a believer. Now, you understand what we're talking about here? We're just talking about how God is at work in the neighborhood. How God has it all under His sovereignty. He's constantly pursuing. He's constantly touching. He's constantly revealing and disclosing things about Himself. Drawing a heart toward Christ. Toward conversion. So that today, there are more Muslims that have come to follow Christ in the past 10 years than the last 15 centuries. You just have to let that one sink in for a minute. In Iran, 1979, there were 500 believers. In 2000, 220,000 believers. In Iraq, in 2003, 600 believers. By 2008, there were 70,000 believers. And in Egypt, as crazy as Egypt is right now, there is a revival breaking out amongst Coptic believers. So that there are now 10 million believers in Egypt 
that has caused for an increase in persecution. And over the last 12 months, 400 Christians have been killed because of this reviving thing that's happening among the believing community. Friends, what we're saying is this. We have the privilege of knowing a great God who does a great saving work in us and invites us into a great mission for this glory. To love people, to bless people in Jesus' name, and to see God at work in them in ways that draw them into a saving relationship with Himself. It's our day to carry out the mission of Christ. We've been preceded by generation after generation who have given their lives, who have prayed, who have sacrificed, who have suffered. And now, it's our day. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of information to take in. And I just am particularly mindful of whatever friends that are in the house today are listening to this that struggle with these matters that we understand to be true. So by your Spirit, by the work that only you can do, would you help them as they grapple with these issues? Would you bring revelation to their heart and mind? And Father, for others of us that believe, that follow, that are committed, we've given you our lives, we pray. Use these days to stoke the flame that's in our hearts, to help us be more prayerful and strategic about joining you in your mission on this globe. In Jesus' name, amen.